to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Bullock. Welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fullick, and as always, we like to talk about things related to crisis, business continuity, resilience, well-being, COVID, emergency management, anything that helps you, your organization, or your community prepare for, respond to, and overcome adverse situations. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, please feel free. You can find me on LinkedIn. I'm the only Alex Fullick there. I'm really easy to find, and I do respond to everything I get. Today is going to be a little bit different. Um, We've talked about some terrorism on uh, the show before in previous episodes. Um, We're going to change that up a little bit today. We're going to look at, uh, the topic is living with the impacts of terrorism. And I'm really uh, honored to have with me today, Anne Travers. Anne, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Alex. Thank you for having me on. And now today's going to be a very personal show. And um, part of me is very nervous <laughs> you know, to talk about this because I know you are going to share a very personal story and, and incidents. Um, and another part of me is very excited because it is something new that I haven't addressed before. So uh, I'm really looking forward to, to this uh, chat. But before we get into all of that, could you take a moment to uh, introduce yourself, what you do, and how you got into what you do, without trying to give some of the topic away today? Okay. Well, as you've already said, my name's Anne Travers. Um, I was born in Belfast on in 1969 and grew up during the Troubles. And my family were impacted by the Troubles. Um, terrorism came to our door. And a number of years ago, about 11 years ago, 12 years ago, it raised his head again for me that from what happened came, came back into came back into my life unexpectedly, which um, brought me back down into a place where I thought I'd never have to go to again. It was very traumatic. And it built up within me a bit of... Um, I felt that I had to speak up on behalf of um, victims of terrorism, but more especially of my own family and my own sister, who I'll talk about later on. And from that, then I ended up, um, now I, 11 years old, I, I started work with a victim's charity in Northern Ireland. I live in the Republic of Ireland and I'm an advocate for victims and survivors of terrorism um, here in the Republic of Ireland. And I speak out on many issues concerning um, victims and survivors today. Um, <clears throat> now, I, I recall from the uh, information you provided me that you also, uh, or your your organization at least, also deals with victims in other parts of the globe, not just North yes. of, Northern Ireland. But that's Northern indeed. Ireland is going to be your yeah, support. Indeed we do. We, we do with, we support victims in Great Britain and also over in Europe who um, were impacted. And we also then have um, people that we support who live in Australia now, um, where they were maybe in Europe when something happened to them or they've, or they've, um, they've emigrated. So yeah, we support all over really. Whoever needs our support or whoever needs that ear or the advocacy or, or you know, we, we will support. Now you mentioned the troubles. Uh, and you've mentioned terrorism. First, can we talk about terrorism? What is terrorism and what isn't it? Well, for me, um, terrorism is not being able to go out to your job or, or take part in daily life without that fear that something is going to happen unexpectedly so whether it's the bomb in the shopping centers 
or whether it's um, a bomb under your car, you start up your car to go to work in the morning, um, or being being shot as you go about your business, you know, whether it's coming out from, from mass, whether it's dropping your kids off to school, answering your front door. For me, that is terrorism. Um, people often use, there's a quote they'll always use, you know, one, one person's ter- terrorist is another person's freedom fighter. And I would say a murder is still always a murder, mm-hmm. you know, regardless. Um, I don't feel that, you know, people again often describe what happened in Northern Ireland. They say it was a war. What happened in Northern Ireland was not a war. It doesn't actually even fit into the international definition of a war. It's nothing like what's going on in Ukraine or what we have seen in Syria um, in, in recent years. It was people who put on masks, who wore wigs, who disguised themselves or went under, in the middle of the night under the earth's darkness to fight to murder. And um, they weren't defending anything. On their, I suppose in their minds they were, you know, for Republicans, they were felt that they were fighting the British to have the British leave um, Northern Ireland. And for loyalists, they felt that they were fighting Republicans so they could remain part of um, Great Britain or the United Kingdom. But for the rest of us, the people in between, the absolute in- the innocents, the people who didn't choose to lift up a gun, who um, tried to go about our own business, it was absolute terrorism. And ironically, I left Northern Ireland um, for about five years. I left Ireland and I went to live in England. And before I left... Um, I was having terrible nightmares about loyalist gunmen breaking into my home and shooting me in my bed at night because I'm a Catholic, even though it was Republican terrorists who actually came to our door. So that, for me, with terrorists, it is that fear. It's still like, you know, you get on a flight. I still think about 9-11, even if I get onto a plane. You know, is this is mm-hmm. I no longer take for granted that my, my my flight is going to land safely at my destination, and I think with terrorists they put that fear into you to try to stop you from living your life um, as you should be allowed to do. So that for me, that's what that's what terrorism is. Uh, living in fear twenty four seven. Twenty four seven, and even now I would say that. Um, I would still be impacted by that and still worry because of what I do that something might happen to me or they might try to do something, whether it's not necessarily a threat to my life, but whether it's a threat to my livelihood or um, or something else, you know, whether it's to black my name or whatever. I still have that fear. And I will never say or very, very rarely let people know where I'm going until I actually have been there and left. So, you know, mm-hmm. people are saying, are you, because I live um, just outside of Dublin, they say, you're going up to Northern Ireland, you're going up to Belfast. And I say, yes, I am. But I won't say when or where or what I'm doing because I still have that, I still have that fear. And that may be completely irrational, but it's a fear that I live with. So would I be correct in saying that terrorism activities could be over, but the impacts linger for years. Oh, absolutely. Impact does. And unfortunately here in Ireland, um, where we are not having the bombings and the, and the daily murders, we are having, um, there's another type of what I call cyber terrorism. So if you go online or if you speak out publicly, um, where, and if your voice is authentic and articulate, where they will try to close that voice down. And that has happened on many occasions, not just to me, but to journalists, to other victims and survivors. There's very few victims and survivors of the troubles who actually, from Republican terrorism, I'm not talking about um, the, those that were killed by the state, um, because they, they, they are, seem to be in bigger groups and they seem to have, they have support from Republicans. They seem to be able to speak out more. But there's very few victims of Republican terrorism who actually speak out because when you do, there is um, sheer just abuse and, and fear 
you know, I, I understand why people don't do it. I really do. Hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, you've mentioned uh, the troubles. What exactly is the troubles? Because I don't think a lot of people really understand what that is. Okay. So it was a time of um, conflict, I suppose, in Northern Ireland. And we always knew it was growing up as being the troubles, which some people say, just using the word the troubles diminishes um, what actually happened. But it's a it's a difficult one to explain. Um, there was um, gerrymandering. There were um, rights for uh, Catholics were were low, um, but and there were political parties who were trying to get equal rights for um, Catholics with voting and that. And it just they were trying to do it peacefully. And then we have people who felt that on both sides, both within loyalists, which is extreme, um, I don't want to say extreme unionism, but, you know, that streams of like between Protestants and Catholics, you know, so mm -hmm. typically you're thinking nationalist Republicans are Catholics, unionist loyalists are Protestants. That would be a typical thing, although there are quite a number of Catholics who'd also be unionists and, and there might be some Protestants who are also nationalists who 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 would want to have a united Ireland who don't want to have we don't want to be part of um the UK. So it started out with um killings. Actually it was a policeman I think that was killed by um loyalists. I think it was the first killing. And then it um went on from there. We've you know what people know about Bloody Sunday perhaps where um the there was a peace um uh, march going on and the soldiers shot at and there were people killed at that and um, that then but, but in 1972 whenever that happened there were so many many murders from both sides of the community and I think it was probably one of our worst years really um, and yeah and the troubles I suppose it just went on like that I, I said I was a child at that time I was born in 1969 and um, all I ever remember were, I mean, actually, I think my very first word was bomb. Um, it wasn't mummy or daddy, it was bomb. And all I remember ever were bombs going off, gunfire going off. So uh, there was security going into town. I was used to being searched. You know, I remember actually my parents, brings, we went down to Dublin for a day trip. I think my mum wanted to go to a shop called Switzer's. There was a sale or something on. And I stopped at the mum and dad and my brothers and sister all went on in front of me and dad came back to get me and uh, I had my arms stretched out. And he said, what are you doing, Anne? And I said, I'm waiting to be searched, daddy. And he said, oh, they don't do that, Anne, here. And we were able to go in. But, you know, that was just my automatic reaction was, mm -hmm. um, you know, just of being searched. So... I suppose it was a time of violence, of deep civil disturbance within um, Northern Ireland and Ireland, and where you had the provisional IRA, other Republican factions, and um, the the UVF, which stands for the Ulster Volunteer Force, and the UDA, um, all combining to shoot civilians and those who served in security forces. And then you had people, some people from the security forces who also acted criminally and... Um, also were involved in murders. Um, the vast majority of the security forces were not involved in murders, but there were those that did. And, you know, we can't ignore that and we have to acknowledge it. Um, it's it's very difficult for somebody like me, who's always been very law-abiding and he's always, you know, followed the law to think that some of the people who he trusted broke the law at times. But, um, yeah, but these were people who acted criminally and they let down their own uniform and their own colleagues um, of whom the majority of, I mean, there are over 100,000 RUC officers, which would be Royal Ulster Constabulary police officers at that time. Um, and you're talking about a very tiny percentage of that 100,000 who acted criminally. And yet they've all got, they've all been painted with the same um, brush, you know? Yeah. And it's, wrong really wrong because those families lost their husbands and wives and daughters 
um, while going about their duty just for doing their job. On that note, we've come to the end of our first segment. We are talking with Anne Travers today on the topic of living with the impacts of terrorism. You're not going to want to miss our second segment. We'll be right back. Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Not enough women are talking about money. Lisa Chastain is aiming to change that. If you are feeling uncertain with your financial decisions, join us on Real Money, Mondays at 10 a.m. on the Voice America Business Channel, where you will learn how to become more capable with your financial choices. Listen in and hear stories from other women on how they tackled their financial challenges. You will learn from leading industry experts all the tips, tricks, and advice that you need to establish financial confidence and freedom. Listen in Mondays on Real Money with Lisa Chastain. Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back. Today we are talking with Ann Travers on the topic of living with the impacts of terrorism. Now, I said at the end of segment one, you're not going to want to miss uh, this segment. Ann is going to share some uh, a very personal story, and I'm going to do my best not to say anything. And I'm handing the microphone over to you to share your story. Thanks, Alex. Well, I suppose I said earlier on, I was born in Belfast in 1969 on the 1st of May. Um, just shortly, around about the time actually the troubles started. In fact, my dad used to joke with me and say, that it was all my fault that I was the one who started the troubles. I was always a bit of trouble. Um, I was born into my mum and dad, Tom and Joan, and I um, had four big brothers and uh, one big sister. So my eldest brother, Tom, and then came Mary, Martin, Paul, Hugh and myself. And I suppose I enjoyed the benefits of being the youngest of a large family. Um, I plenty of people who wanted to play with me, but especially my sister Mary, who was eight years older than me. And when I was born, my mum would say that they were so delighted to have a little baby girl, they say, oh great, a sister for Mary. And then as life progressed after Mary was killed, um, my mum would say, but there's no sister now for Anne. The IRA made sure that Anne didn't have a sister. So the my childhood was really quite lovely, even though I was growing up in Belfast and, you know, bombs and killings and murder was going on all around me and, you know, bricks on the road and um, cars burnt out and it was just, you know, buildings blowing up. But that was just normal to me. And when I was 14, um, on Mary had, well, Mary graduated as a, as a teacher in July, a primary school teacher in July at 1983. And she got her very first teaching job in a primary school in Anderson's called Holy Child. And she was teaching primary three boys. So they would be about age seven. It was a Catholic primary school because we were Catholics, we brought up Catholic. And uh, they would be making their first communion 
in that year in primary three, which is one of their sacraments. Um, and on the 8th of April, 1984, um, my I went to an early, early mass. It was Sunday. It was a lovely spring day. It was absolutely a beautiful day. Um, I had spoken with Mary the previous night about some sociology homework that I had to have done. And she said that she would help me with when she came back um, in the afternoon. She had something to do over in school in the um, afternoon. Actually, the little boys would be making their first confessions in preparation for the first home communions. And she'd help me with the sociology homework. So on the morning of the 8th of April, I saw Mary um, walking down our corridor. We lived in the bungalow. And uh, she was just outside the bathroom and she's wearing this lovely red flowery dressing gown that I think Dad had brought back from one of his trips over to London when he was a solicitor. Um, and she said good morning to me and I sort of grunted a bit at her because I was sort of thought, oh, no, I'm going to do the sociology homework now. You know, I was 14, a teenager, not really kind of in the mood for doing anything. And... Uh, that was the last time, though, that I ever spoke to Mary. It was the last time I ever saw her alive. So um, I often wish that I could go back in time and say to her at that moment, Mary, I absolutely love you. You are the best big sister that I could ever, ever hope for. You are my protector. You are just all things wonderful. And I'm going to jump back, hop back a little bit from that day just to tell you a little bit about Mary. Um, so you do understand just really just what a huge loss she her murder was to society, really, not just to us. Mary was very musically gifted. She played the piano. She could play, although she could read music, she could also play just by ear. But not only did she play the piano, she also played the concert harp. And uh, Mary was, you know, she was quite petite. She was five foot four and a bit. She said that bit was very important. And she weighed about seven stone, which I think is about 96, 98 pounds, I think. Um, she was really very tiny, but she played this massive concert harp and uh, her fingers would get all blisters on them because she would have to be practicing and practicing and have to toughen up her fingers. But she would go through that pain just for the music. So this harp is so huge that it would sit in our hall. She was loaned it by the Ulster orchestra lent it to her the school of music lent it to her and we couldn't afford a, a harp and so every time you'd open up the front door Mary was home you'd just have this beautiful music just coming our house is filled with music and um, my parents my my mum was a housewife and my dad was a solicitor up until 1980 when he took on a full-time post as a resident magistrate um, which is like a district court judge um, and there weren't many Catholics on the judiciary, but he was one of the few that went on to it. And uh, anyway, that Sunday, I went out to 11 o'clock mass and came home and Mary and mum and dad had left for 12 o'clock mass. My mum sang in the choir at 12 o'clock mass. We lived very close to our local chapel. It was only a matter of a few hundred yards away you know from our our home we were, we were right next to it practically and um after mass they um mum decided that she wanted to help gather up the missalettes from you know the from the choir and dad and mary had been waiting on her and she said no just you two go on um well, i'm going to gather these up so dad and mary began walking home and they stopped in the car park to chat to a friend and colleague of my dad's who was in his car with his wife and my mum caught up with them and put her arms around them both, you know, and uh, then they sort of jostled a little bit and dad said, oh, no, I want Mary to walk beside me. And mum said, no, I want Mary to walk beside me. And they were just giggling and laughing and Mary walked in between them and they were chatting about, Mary was chatting about what hymns she was going to be singing or playing you know, and the boys were going to be singing that afternoon. And um, mum and dad were so proud of Mary, you know, absolutely so proud of her. And they, mum, they were about a couple of hundred yards from our house. And mum had just said to Mary, um, or said to my dad, doesn't Mary look lovely today? 
And Mary lifted up the collar of her little, of her blouse. It was a new blouse that she'd bought for herself and said, Mum, do you like it? And with that, they heard a gunshot and they stopped. And um, the previous year, in January um, 1983, I think it was 16th of January, um, uh, a judge had been shot outside of our church, a friend of my of my dad's. He'd been shot while um, getting back into his car and giving this elderly lady a lift home. I was actually at that mass and heard the gunshots and thought it was my dad at that time. I went running back when my mum met me and told me it wasn't. It was awful. So dad thought that somebody had been shot and he, in his head, he said, was going to trip them up, whoever came running past. And um, of course, when he turned around, what he saw was a man in front of him who he described as having a wild look in his eyes as though he was high on drink or drugs. And he was waving something underneath the newspaper. And dad said to the, to the man, what do you want? And he, he replied to him, it's you that we want. At that same time, Mary turned to face my dad and said, Daddy, that man has a gun. My dad thought that she was talking about the, the man, the gunman he was looking at. But actually, she was talking about another gunman who was on the other side of the road. It was a narrow road. It was an avenue. And um, as she said that, the gunman that she was talking about shot her once in the back. And she fell into my mum's arms, knocking mum down onto the ground. And the gunman that was with in front of my dad started to shoot my dad, shot him once in the shoulder, set him onto the ground, and then stood over him and put six bullets into his body. And at that same time, the gunman that shot Mary walked over to my mum while Mary was dying on my mum's chest and put the gun to my mum's forehead and pulled the trigger once the bullets jammed, pulled the trigger a second time, the bullets jammed. And with that, the two gunmen ran off down an alleyway. And um, later on, forensics would show when the guns were recovered, actually the gunman had pulled a third time, my mum would have been killed. Um, I think she was about 57 when, when Mary was, was shot, um, when Mary was killed. So... At that same time, my my brothers had heard the gunshots and they were in the kitchen of our house. I was down in my bedroom, that music on. I was playing Radio 1, which is like a pop channel, you know, 1984. And my brother, Paul, came running into my bedroom and said, Anne, quick, go down to outside the tennis courts where mum, dad, mum, dad and Mary had been shot. And I went, what? And he said, quick, you don't have time. Go down and help them. So I followed him out of the bedroom he went into my parents' bedroom where there was a police radio. It was the only bit of um, security equipment that we had because my dad refused to have a bodyguard or to have um, carry a gun himself because he said, one, he couldn't be responsible. He couldn't live himself. Some man lost his life trying to protect his. And two, he knew he could never fire a gun. He could never take another person's life, so he wouldn't carry a gun. So we were given this... Um, radio where I heard Paul say um, Alpha Lima 168 which was our our emergency code directly to um, Castle Ray which is the centre uh, police uh, unit to come out and I heard my other brother Martin on the phone to the emergency services ambulance and police as well and I ran out of our house and uh, onto Windsor Avenue and I looked right and I could see my I could see mum and Mary and dad lying on the road and I ran down to them and I saw Mary lying on top of my mum and uh, mum was looking over at dad and she was like completely stunned and she's got my husband she was just she was just completely confused and some people lifted Mary off off mum and kind of put her lying on the road um, at the bottom of where dad was lying on the gravel and her head was turned. She just didn't look very comfortable. And she was sort of like gurgling a bit. And uh, my dad was still conscious and he he was trying to undo his collars and cuffs. And my mum knelt down beside him and said, my husband, my husband, somebody please help my poor husband. And this man said to me, 
they went that way and pointed down to the alleyway. And I'm looking, I'm thinking, oh, what am I meant to do with this? Like, am I supposed to run after and go and get go and get them? I didn't know what to do. And next thing, an unmarked police car came up and I said to them, they went that way, pointed down the alleyway. So they drove around. And um, there was a lot of confusion. The UDR, which is the Ulster Defence Regiment, um, which was a local um, regiment based in Northern Ireland, came up and there was a, a UDR lady who the police, unmarked police car came back round again. It's, it appeared to just be there again. And she said to me, she tried to get me into the back of this car and I didn't want to get into the back, but she could obviously see how much in shock I was. And um, I said, I don't want to go in there. And she said, no, no, get in, get in it's for your own good. You'd be, you're better off in there. So I got into the car and try, immediately tried to get out through the other door, but it was locked. And um, I was waiting and I sort of felt like I was being arrested. Obviously I wasn't, you know, she was obviously trying to protect me, but it was, um, you know, I really didn't want to be in that car. So then the first ambulance arrived and that distracted her. So I jumped out. And at this stage, um, Mary had been put into the ambulance and my brother Paul was sitting in there. And there was another lady there who had a cloth and some water and she was trying to clean Mary up. And I um, I since found out that she was a doctor who was off duty, who happened to be walking, you know, who was there on the scene, who was passing by. And I got into the ambulance and sat down beside Paul and looked at Mary and she was lying so still. And Paul said to this lady, but she's going to be all right, isn't she? And she kind of shook her head. And I just stumbled out of that ambulance and um, went back up to our house. And there I phoned my um, a friend of mine, who was only 14 herself, 15 actually. And I told her that my mum, dad and Mary had been shot. Um. So after that, you know, we had the funeral. We had, you know, it was like a huge funeral. I had um, my classmates all came over. Not all of them, some of them. One girl in particular who I was very friendly with told me that she couldn't come to it because she lived in a very Republican area and her family would be threatened if she came to it. And yet she was one of my closest friends at that time. Um, Mary's little primary three boys, these seven-year-old little boys all came to it. They'd been waiting for their teacher to arrive at St. Agnes's Church that afternoon, that she was shot and she had to be told their teacher wasn't coming and why. You know, and they all loved her so much. And some of those boys still keep in contact with me. They kept in contact with my mum for a long time before she, before she passed away in 2017, and now they keep in contact with me. And it was just a very surreal experience. My parents had to go into witness protection because um, uh, there was a lady arrested close to the scene with the guns and wigs on her that had been passed to her by the two gunmen. And um, she had to be, uh, she was she was up on charge of murder for Mary's murder and the attempted murder of my father. And then my dad identified a man that, that he shot it that he believed shot him a guy called joseph hockey who's since deceased um uh but while we were waiting for this trial to come up mum and dad had to go into witness protection i was sent to boarding school in port stewart in uh in county Derry. it just it's a, it's a it's a beautiful place by the sea but unfortunately the school just looked a bit like cold it's sitting up on a on a on the hill and um I was quite unhappy there, not nothing to do with the school itself, but I was obviously, you know, really still very traumatised. You know, I was sent there seven months after this, um, after what had happened, after losing Mary. And um, so I remember looking out through the windows some days and I think I been, was being punished for something that I hadn't done, you know, seeing people out playing. I wasn't free to go where I wanted to go anymore. Um, I had to be driven to school when I was, Going there, I had to be driven in an armoured, unmarked police car because there's a threat of kidnap um, towards me. And actually, the I was only there a few months when the phone call came into school saying, get Anne Travers out now if you want her to walk out alive. I was 15 years of age and I was lifted out from my history class. 
and brought down the principal's office and told this. And I went into hysterics and it was the deputy principal who was there, who was a nun. And um, she said to me, why are you getting so upset? And I just went into it and I said, because my sister was only just killed, you know, eight months ago or whatever. And it just, I, it was just awful. And I had to wait for um, a female police officer and a male police officer to come from Coleraine Police REC station, which was the next town, to bring me into there where I had to sit and wait until female officer and a male officer came down from Belfast to bring me up home. Um, and mum came, came home as well for a week, but we weren't allowed to leave the house for a week. And then I was sent back to school as though like nothing had ever happened. But um, it always remained with me, you know, that fear. Anyway, with the court case, Joseph Hockey was acquitted because of how the identity had been done, uh, how my dad had identified him in the process wasn't right. Um, and Mary McArdle was found guilty and she was sentenced to um, life imprisonment, but was released under the Good Friday Agreement. And when she was sentenced, she waved and cheered to all of her family in the in the um, gallery. So there was no remorse there from her. And yeah, and that was it. And I just went on then to live my life, I suppose. And then, um, you know, I didn't realise, I suppose in those days we didn't have counselling and things like you would have now whenever you have terror events happen around the world, you know, um, where there's counselling and support. We didn't have that in Northern Ireland. We, you know, you lost a loved one and you were expected to go back to work within a few days or as in my case, to go back to school and just get on with life. There was somebody else who was killed the following day. There were more funerals. It just kept on going on and on and on and on. And uh, yeah, and I, I got married whenever I was um, 21 and moved over to England then, um, where we lived for about five years before moving back to Ireland, where we settled just outside of Dublin. And uh and I have five children now. You're all grown up. But um, yeah, so that's where I am at the moment, and which led me into doing what I'll, you know, do. And on that, we've come to the end of our second segment. We're going to talk about um, what the future held after that. We're talking with Ann Travers today, living with the impacts of terrorism. We'll be right back. told me Voice America is on Twitter. Follow us at Voice America TRN. Small businesses are in trouble, and it didn't just start with COVID-19. From the recession several years ago to the revolution of e-commerce giants more recently, small businesses are getting hit hard and need to come back. Tune in to Business Buzz and Business Watch. It's two shows in one, hosted by Frank Hellring. We'll help your small business bounce back with best practices, guest experts, and resources that you can use to strengthen your small business. Listen Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific and 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Say It Skillfully is my radio show about being who you are and saying what you think needs to be said. This is your host, Molly Chang. I'll help you find the right words to tackle any challenging conversation you've been avoiding. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. You'll learn how to achieve success on your terms and be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in your life. Check out SayItSkillfully.com for practical resources, including my 90-second videos, real-life examples showing you how to speak up skillfully. I invite you to call in with your questions. Join me live every Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. And no, I'm cheering for you. Want to see what Voice America is up to behind the scenes? Follow us on TikTok at Voice America Talk Radio. You 
are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back. Today we are talking with Ann Travers uh, about the, living with the impacts of terrorism. And um, I can't express, I don't, I don't know if I've got the words to express the, the amount of gratitude I have for you for sharing your story there in segment two. Um, let's jump ahead a few years. There's some things that came out of that situation. Yes. So as I said, I moved over to England and then moved back again. And um, in 2011, I had dropped um, my younger children up to school and I'd just come home and was sitting having my cup of coffee before I got started into what I had to do for the day. And um, I received a phone call from a journalist, from a BBC researcher for Radio Ulster, for a programme called Talkback to ask me if I knew that um, Mary McArdle, the woman who'd been convicted of Mary's murder and released under Good Friday Agreement, had been appointed a special advisor to the Sinn Féin culture minister. Now, I don't think I'm going to be able to explain adequately to your viewers and to yourself, Alex, just how even hearing Mary McArdle's name being said by somebody else, the impact that that had on me, it took me, it was like a train came and hit me from the side. I um, couldn't speak. I asked the, the researcher if she could phone me back in five minutes. And I just felt all the oxygen leave my body. And I moved onto a chair at the window and I just rang one of my brothers and I said, Mary McCarl has been appointed special, special advisor to Sinn Féin minister and uh, culture minister and I was just in I was back there I was back down running down Windsor Avenue I could see Mary lying on top of mum I could see my dad lying on the ground I was just reliving it all again every single moment of it and um, she the researcher phoned back and I to be honest I didn't even really know what a special advisor was um, but it was then when I realised this position was gifted to her, she, um, she had been known as OC, so officer in command in prison for the IRA in the women's prison. So she'd been OC over this culture minister, Karen Cullen. And really she was being gifted this position as a reward for all that she had done in her service and time in the IRA. Now there was a, a, a team, a historical inquiries team which did reviews of murders within Northern Ireland. And they had been reviewing my sister's murder and they'd written to Mary McArdle to ask her for any help because, you know, Sinn Féin had signed up to policing, they'd signed up, that things were changing. And um, she ignored the letter. She wouldn't, she wouldn't give any help to our family to try to give answers of who was the gunman who murdered my sister or just to give us some something. She wouldn't give us anything. So... I anyway it was an absolute state of shock. My mum was still alive. My dad died in two thousand nine, um, and uh, I just thought there's my mum, a taxpayer who was basically paying for her sister's, her daughter's killer, you know, to have this this position. And because I was in so much shock, and I did this interview on this radio program, suddenly the media all came, the BBC, at Ulster Television, you know, lots of different interests. And I was on the media a lot, sort of explaining why I was so upset and why I was so distraught. I looked up the Good Friday Agreement to see where the victims' rights were in this. You know, where were the victims' rights not to be re-traumatised? And there was nothing. I realised at that point that actually the Good Friday Agreement mentions victims twice, but it's not offer any benefit for victims and survivors. Victims and survivors had to um, give up so much for peace they lost their loved ones they lost limbs they're living with trauma and then they had to agree to prisoners and people who murdered their loved ones be released from prison and now with situation where those people who have been found guilty of murder were now being rewarded in top jobs being paid ninety thousand pounds sterling a year top paying jobs and i stupidly thought actually Sinn Féin had changed and i 
kind of thought that by going on to the media and that, that maybe they would say, look, we didn't realise, you know, just how difficult we see how hard this has affected the Travers family and we rethink it. And although we think Mary should have this job, you know, we'll rethink it and maybe have discussions and see what we can do. Um, instead, I received, was patronised. Um, Martin McGuinness, who is deceased, um, who was a, a deputy first minister at that time, said on radio that it was obvious it was having a neuralgic effect on me. Um, I don't know, neuro neuralgia is nerve pain, so I really don't know what he meant by that. Um, so I anyway, I wrote to all of the um, MLAs who are the ministers up in Northern Ireland Executive, and I asked them what could be done. I had an appointment with the first minister, Peter Robinson, and I went to see him. I was so naive. I was just going into my own. I was so, I had no idea about politics. I had never, found, I was a mother. I had never found myself in this situation. No idea. And I, the, the first minister at that time said, well, look, there is something we can do to stop it from happening again, but we can't apply this retrospectively. And another, um, MLA came along called Jim Allister and he um, was from a legal background. He was a barrister. He'd actually appeared up in front of court as a barrister in front of my dad. So we knew my dad. And he said, look, um, I think that we can apply this retrospectively. I think there is a way that we can do legislation for this. So I worked along with him. And basically um, during that time of trying to do this lobbying, it was really difficult. I was getting trolled unmercifully on Twitter, on my Twitter. Um, I had, had been made, uh, I had been invited to join the Victims Forum, um, which is like an official sort of forum, forum in with the Victims Commission um, I, in 2012. But within that, there would have been um, Republicans within that um, who bullied me unmercifully. Um, they ignored me. Um, they, uh, you know, I'd walk into the loos and they'd all go quiet or come out. You know, there was just no, there was no support there. And the support I did get was from victims and survivors of Republican terrorism, um, where I actually then met my now boss, um, Kenny Donaldson. And uh, it was a very difficult time. I had a miscarriage. I lost my, I lost a baby just uh Actually, I was about 12 weeks pregnant and I lost. So that happened on the 18th of May. Um, that appointment was announced and I lost the baby in, in towards the end of June. Um, I developed breast cancer. So during the time I was having my treatment, breast cancer is going to have, still going up and loving. But I'm pleased to say that in 2013, the Special Advisors Bill became law and also known as Anne's Law. And it's known as Anne's Law. It was named by Jim Alistair as Anne's Law because um, my sister Mary and Mary McArdle shared the same names. And this prevents anybody with a serious criminal conviction from being gifted the position of special advisor. However, they can have that position and they may take up that role if they agree to help the family, whether it is even just by apologising to the family, um, you know, being remorseful for what they did, or if it's by helping them bring further justice. Unfortunately, within um, Sinn Féin special advisors, there were a couple who had murdered people and they decided that they, you know, they were going to lose their jobs and they decided they didn't want to help the families. So they lost their jobs. That has left me um, very unpopular within Republican circles and within the ex-community, Republican ex-prisoners. Um, ex but I would like to let them know that I there is I have I would always be for rehabilitation and people being able to get on with their lives once they serve their time. But I do think that you need to think about your victim as well. It's like having the rapist move into the house next door, you know, who's raped you. You know, you wouldn't society wouldn't accept that. You know, it wouldn't be you know it wouldn't be comfortable. They'd be they'd be ordered by the courts to live a distance away from their victim, mm -hmm. and. We as victims and survivors from the troubles who've had loved ones murdered, we feel no differently. Um, and it's uh, it's it's so important that people understand the trauma that we are still living with. As I mentioned in one of the earlier segments, we didn't have counselling, we didn't have help. So many of us are suffering from 
anxiety, PTSD, and we live with long-term illness, autoimmune disease. I mean, Northern Ireland is just so high for that. And, um, you know, it's so important that people are careful with their with their language and, and what they do. So I now work for, uh, as I said, for a charity as an advocate for victims and survivors of terrorism from both loyalist, Republican and those killed by the state. And I'm passionate about victims' rights and, and about the fact that they need to be acknowledged that what happened to them was wrong. And thank you so much for sharing all this information. Um, I know there are people, unfortunately, around the globe that are victims of terrorism. And um, I think every country probably has some sort of community or person, organization, something that has been impacted by terrorism. We're all impacted by it. And for you to come on the show and talk about that, um, I applaud you uh, for standing up for, for Mary, standing up for uh, your family your community, and for those that are impacted and may not feel they have a voice. So thank you so much for sharing uh, your story. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you very much, Alex. And as, as I said, everything I do, I do for my sister Mary. And that's a wonderful way to end the show. Thank you, Anne, and everybody watching and listening. Stay prepared, everybody. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll see you here next week.